to orange scafies on the side of the road, or the pride of having watched a family member or somebody close to you conquer their dream of finishing this incredible race, we all have some personal connection to comrades. For every person that makes the decision to commit to the all-consuming training, it starts with a goal or a dream. I'm not talking about the elite athletes who have the genetic build for this, not that I really believe anyone's built for 90 kilometers, but for the regular Joes like myself, there's more often than not a story behind those runners. My dream started at the roadside in Westville, where my mom used to take us to the same spot every year. And as a little girl, I can remember watching runners come through, pushing themselves to their absolute limit. I remember the smells of the deep heat and arnica, and I remember seeing the tears and the pain, people cramping, and I remember it always being such an emotionally charged day. I remember most vividly the passion that I recognized and that I connected with even so far back and the determination for them to carry on when they appeared so broken. I would watch the end on TV and later when I was older, every year in the stadium, and I would sob watching those runners coming in just as, about, just as the gun was about to fire. The emotion on these people's faces after having spent months training, early mornings, injuries, sacrifices, which back then I thought I fully understood, but now know I had absolutely no idea. And then for them to be out there for 12 hours, only to miss the gun by seconds. Every year, it just blew me away, and I always said, one day, I'm gonna be strong enough to join those brave hearts. Life happens, and the years rolled by. At, sorry, I'm gonna hold this, but it's gonna be shaking. But, uh, you know, I'm 42 now, so the eyesight, oh, I didn't realize it's actually, yeah. <laughs> Life happens, and the years rolled by. At 22, I married my childhood sweetheart. We were together from the age of 16, and we were unbreakable. After studying, we moved to the UK to save up for the adventure of a lifetime. And 18 months later, with a budget of 20 quid a day, that would last us 14 months, we took off with our backpacks on the most epic round-the-world trip. We were each other's north and south, and the experiences that we shared were ones that to this day still define me. We got back to South Africa, and we both started successful businesses in the Berg, but something just wasn't right. We were restless, and we decided to adventure again. We, needed to he we headed back to the UK, and two years on, we were still chasing, chasing some invisible dream to find wholeness. We jointly made the decision for my husband to join a business venture with his brother-in-law in China, and the silver line prospects were too hard for us to pass up. Friends warned us of the dangers of living apart and commuting between a life in mainland China and the UK and later South Africa, but we thought that we knew better we put ambition and material goals first, and it cost us dearly. The details are unnecessary, only to say that it broke our marriage, and both of us as individuals. I lost my best friend of 13 years to someone else, and with him, a part of my soul. <laughs> Sorry. There was no drama, there was no lengthy drawn out divorce proceedings. We sat together 
in front of a shared lawyer who watched as we both sat sobbing, empty and exhausted from the chase, forever connected through the adventures that we had shared, but both broken, lost, and not having realized the only one thing that would ever truly fulfill us. 13 years together, seven years of longing for a child, all the heartache and the disappointment of years that had slipped by as a massive chapter of my life drew to a close. I felt like a shell filled with regret and sadness for so many wrong turns. Divorce had not been my childhood dream for myself and had left a very deep and painful wound. I vowed that I would never marry again and I planned to adopt a little Chinese girl once I'd got back on my feet when my heart had healed. I believed that I would be stronger alone and that I could never remarry for the risk of ever having to endure the pain and the shattering of divorce. God had other plans for me. Less than a year later, I met the most honorable, steadfast, strong, and amazing person who had the grace and the patience to stand beside me while I still grieved what I had lost, the disappointments and the deep sense of failure that threatened to swallow me up. He walked through the healing with me, but more than that, I was able to see God's reflection in a man who had endured and faced so much as a child and yet had flourished into such a strong and self-assured person. Fast forward 13 years, and we're celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary this year, and have the blessing and complete mayhem of three unique, beautiful children, aged six, seven, and eight. And for those of you that don't know me, your calculations are spot on. They're all born in two and a half years. Needless to say, as amazing as the privilege of becoming parents has been, it has been nonstop, and the challenges have more often than not been completely overwhelming and more than we could ever have possibly imagined. I often felt like I just hadn't come up for air, let alone had the chance for stillness or reflection that would allow for any kind of spiritual growth. I plugged at my running inconsistently over the years, but whenever I gained any kind of momentum, there would be a curveball. Just before our little girl turned one, my left hip gave way, and so followed a painful and costly hip surgery that took me out for over a year. I still hung on to my comrade's dream, but I pushed it to the back of my mind, believing that one day the time would be right, my hip and pelvis would recover from three back-to-back -back pregnancies, my joints would get stronger, the demands of kids wouldn't be so relentless, and I would be able to juggle them, my business, and the training. At the end of June last year, the date, the date for comrades was set. It was announced. It was going to be on the 9th of June, my 42nd birthday. I sat down with my husband, and I told him that I felt absolutely convinced beyond measure that this was a sign that this was be to be the year that I took it on. He gave me his full backing, and that night I downloaded the Lindsay Parry bronze program. 
On the 1st of July, I started my training program, and for the first time in a long time, I made myself and my training a priority. Those first few months were hard, and there were so many people that had a lot to say. I was starting far too early. Comrades training only starts in January. But I knew the limitations of my body. And I also knew that there was no way that I could go from running 10 kilometers to 90 kilometers in just six months. I tried so hard to fit in with numerous runners and groups, but for the most part, I found it immensely challenging. Timings never quite worked, and it was hard enough trying to fit in with my kids' schedule, schedules, my helper's availability, and my husband leaving early in the mornings for work, without having to wait for answers on who could run at what time and from where. I soon realized that I didn't have enough energy for it all. An overwhelming feeling settled over me that I needed to run alone. I didn't know this at the time, but that was to be one of the single most impactful decisions I made early on in my training. Running alone meant that I got, got to have time away from the chaos of my kids, away from the chatter and the noise, and it allowed for long overdue conversations with myself but more importantly, with God. I got to think about my life and how much of myself had disappeared over the years since our kids had been born and how far I'd unintentionally drifted from God. I found so much peace and clarity in the hours I spent running. And the more I ran alone, the more I got to see how God was strengthening me, not only physically, but he was strengthening me deep within my soul. In those early months, he was opening my eyes to a bigger picture of life around me, and I so needed that. We had had our fair share of curveballs when it came to our children during this time, but one that will always stand out for me will be the blow of discovering our little girl had hearing loss in her left ear. After an unsuccessful surgery, we realized there was nothing more we could do but have her fitted with a hearing aid. While I say this, Please know how deeply mindful I am of the countless parents there are out there faced with far worse challenges and far worse heartaches than this in their own families. However, every parent knows that the pain we carry for our children and their journeys, however dark or rosy, is always relative to our own pain and our hopes and dreams for them. The three weeks that followed, I had some of my best training. I cried as I ran, and I cried out so much anger and emotion. I thrashed it out with God. I ran on the hottest days at midday, and on the coldest, rainiest days, in thunder and in lightning, and many bergstorms. And the more extreme it was, the more I felt, the more alive I felt, and the stronger I felt I was becoming. I started to realize that so much of the heartbreak I was feeling was related to my own wounds and my relentless pursuit of perfection. I realized that anger threatened to become my weakness and that I had no choice but to let go and trust God if I was going to lead the way for Zana being able to fully embrace it. God had chosen Zana 
and I needed to trust that whatever perceived imperfection she had, that it would not be what defined her. I cried out the realization that my imperfections were a part of me too, that nothing had the power to define or diminish me either, unless I allowed it. My failed marriage could not define me. The failures of my childhood could not define me. My parents had done the best they could for me within their own emotional capacity. God had handpicked Vlad and I for Lucas, Levin, and Zana because he knew that we would be the perfect, imperfect parents, and he had done the same with mine. He trusted us. He trusted me, and through the storm, it was time for me to put my trust in him. We could choose to be swallowed up in anger, or we could embrace it wholeheartedly, believing that this would be another lesson that would grow her and all of us as her family. It so happened that the week, excuse me, sniffing into this thing. <laughs> oh, okay, is it all over? Okay, is it everywhere? Sorry, guys. Woo! Okay, is that better? Oh, thanks. No, you can stop me for that. <laughs> Is it all gone? Yeah. It so happened that the week she was to be fitted with her hearing aid, our middle child landed up in hospital with a twisted bowel. Our plan had been to throw a little celebratory party for her class on the first day of wearing it, and for Vlad and I to do a little skit on each of us being unique and special. We couldn't leave Slev at the hospital, and we couldn't leave Zana to do her first day alone. So it meant me doing it without Vlad. As we walked into the classroom that morning with her cupcakes and her special little gifts for her classmates, I pictured God holding Zana's hand on the one side and mine on his other. And I felt a warmth on my back, and I knew that everything was going to be okay. I shared openly and honestly with her little friends and her classmates about her hearing aid. And there, although there was this little change to her on the outside, that her heart was still exactly the same. They were warm and sincere, and their questions were frank and beautiful, and some quite hysterical, like how much rands had it cost us. <laughs> Each child, one by one, in exchange for a jube-jube, held hands with me, and together we asked God to help us every day to choose being kind. I challenged them to go home that night and say the same prayer with their parents. Imagine we all were able to choose being kind above everything else every single day of our lives. Seven months on, a whole new grade, and our little girl has never been teased or ridiculed or had an unkind word spoken about her ice pink hearing aid, and it's not diffused her sparkle in any way. On the contrary, she has flourished and grown so unbelievably, exceeding all our greatest expectations, and we are so incredibly proud of her. All the fears that we had were totally unfounded, and I've seen nothing but love and kindness surround her all the way. The very thing that I prayed so hard for on all those long runs, he gave us, and so much more. 
running and sticking to my days of training had given me not only the chance to come up for air and to process everything, but the chance to see how much God had in store for us when I reached out. Zana's real name is Sienna Grace, but her one and two-year-old brothers couldn't pronounce it when she was born, so she became Zana, and it's stuck ever since. She starts grade one next year, and I could not hold back the tears when I discovered that the grade six buddy that she's been paired up with is not only also named Sienna, but that she too wears a hearing aid in her left ear. God's hand is truly in everything. Things got off to a good start in 2019 for our family. I'd clocked some really good solid runs on the mountains over December that had increased my confidence. Then in February, three weeks before what was supposed to be my qualifying marathon, on a random morning run, I decided that I needed to push myself just to see how fit I was after eight months of training. Could I push sub five minutes a K for 10 kilometers? I took my eyes off the goal and I got fixated on details, forgetting how much more important the bigger picture was. At about nine kilometers, I felt my left hip say stop, and by lunchtime that day, I could barely walk without limping. How could I have been so stupid? What did speed matter if it threatened to derail my entire journey? How could I think that hammering out a quick pace on a training run was of any importance when I knew that my body was compromised already? Gratitude had gone in pursuit of perfection. Was it not enough that God had given me the privilege of eight months of injury-free training with an already fragile hip and pelvis? I rested reluctantly, and I saw a biokinetist, physios, and chiros. But on the Tuesday before the marathon, I still couldn't make it beyond our gatehouse without feeling like my hip had caught fire. I managed to get an appointment for the Thursday with the radiologist who had always been on the mark with diagnosing my hip injuries in the past. And when it came to my hip, he had always been my person. The ultrasound confirmed a significant tear on my iliac crest and prominent thickening and scar tissue from my previous surgery, further reducing the range of movement in my hip joint. I'd not been able to do any of the rehab after my op, as the kids were naught one and two at the time. The sight of pain indicated that I'd also very possibly retorn my labrum, but that could only be confirmed with an MRI. I chose against doing the MRI because the result was not going to change my goal. I had clocked over 1,000 kilometers of training. This was the closest that I'd ever been able to get, and my head just couldn't get around letting go. I knew I was injured, but I also knew that I would most likely never be able to get this far in any comrade's training program uninjured. I had a cortisone injection into the tear, and he categorically told me that I could not push for time. He said, go on Sunday and qualify if you can, but if you push it, you will never make it to the start line of comrades. I had been put in my place, and I realized the only race was against myself. If time mattered, I wouldn't get there at all. By the time Saturday came, I was beside myself with nerves and indecision. My confidence had been shattered, and I felt absolutely torn on what to do. That morning, are we all clear with the eyes? <laughs> and the nose. <laughs> oh, 
this is stressful. <laughs> my confidence had been shattered and I felt absolutely torn on what to do. That morning I got on my knees and I pleaded with God to give me a sign. Had this goal, this dream that I felt was so deeply placed on my heart really been for a greater purpose or had I made it all about me? Literally halfway through my prayer, pleading for a sign, my phone beeped. And I have my husband as a witness on this story because it's so unbelievable. I ignored it, but when I was done and it cried my eyes out, this was the message that had come through while I was praying. Morning, Jules. I had a picture of you this morning and a blue butterfly that flew from your hip up to hover by your left shoulder. I was also reminded of Tabitha in Acts 9, whose name means gazelle. And the sense in both of these images is lightness and grace. Gazelles are able to make off rapidly, even over rough country. Butterflies transcend the ordinary and are a symbol of change and transformation as well as long life. God hasn't given me any clear answer on whether you should run on Sunday or not, because I believe he wants you to ask him, and that either way, this would mark a change in your approach to run with him in a new way. I feel that he loves how you not only get beautiful ideas, but that you action them. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, Acts 9, verse 36. She could never have known that I was praying at that time, asking God to direct me. She could never have known what only Vlad and my kids know, have always known, that butterflies have always been what I believed to be my sign, that my pops, my late grandfather, who died 13 years ago during the blur of my divorce, was still with me. He was without a doubt my life's greatest mentor and teacher. Only during my training had I finally had the chance since his death to properly recall and reflect on so many of the amazing life lessons that he taught me. Of everything I learned from him and of all the amazing qualities he possessed, by far his greatest was the way he made you feel. When I received this message, it was 100% confirmation for me that I was to run the next day, that he was watching over me. God had not only answered my prayer, he had given me an earthly affirmation that my pops was with me. The deep sadness of his passing and the heartache of never having been able to say goodbye or tell him what he had meant to me has faded in the last year. And I have seen more butterflies at countless significant times this year than ever before. I had phoned my dear friend Lauren, whose heart is attached to mine after all that we've shared this last year. And I asked her if she would be willing to pace me. She selflessly agreed. I knew that I didn't have the discipline to run slower and I couldn't take any chances. My 3.59 marathon was no longer even an option and a 4.30 would be slow enough to not have to push it, but still comfortably within the comrades' qualifying time. We planned to do the first lap in 2 hours 10. We completed it in 2 hours 9 minutes and 30 seconds. And our second lap, 2 hours 20, which we did in 2 hours 17. It was awkward running at a pace, 40 seconds a kilometer slower than my usual comfortable pace, and I realized just how enjoyable it was. 
And so it was the next set of lessons that God revealed to me, not just for the marathon I was running, but in every aspect of my life. I needed to slow down. I needed to pace myself. And I needed to enjoy the journey. I'd done the Maritzburg 21 four times prior and always sub two hours, no time for chatting or soaking in the morning vibe. This time running Maritzburg was a whole new experience. I was grateful that we had kept it slow because by the time the pain properly kicked in at around 28 kilometers, had we not held back, I wouldn't have had the energy it took for me to carry on in the second lap in so much pain. Lowell and I recited scriptures and we prayed out loud whenever I felt like I was too sore to carry on running. When we got to the Hollywood Bet's bright purple arch and their club music was playing, <laughs> excuse me, sniffing, Lowell said, Jules, purple is the color of Lent. Jesus died for us, but I'm too tired to think of a scripture. <laughs> so she started reciting the Lord's Prayer. And together, passing through the purple Hollywood bets chaos, we chanted the Lord's Prayer out loud with everything we had left in us on that hot, humid Maritzburg morning. We crossed the finish in four hours 27, and I had qualified for the Comrades Marathon. In the two weeks that followed, the ultrasound-guided cortisone took effect, and the pain eased up enough in my hip for me to return stringently to my program. Repeating to myself on every run, and many times outside of running, slow down, pace yourself, and enjoy the journey. I had an incredible two months of running through March and April, and I felt myself getting stronger and stronger. My pace was slower through the discipline of learning to hold back, and I was well on my way to reaching the 9th of June strong. On the 28th of April, I set off on the 56-kilometer route tester from Hillcrest to Maritzburg. I had the most phenomenal run. I felt so strong. I held myself back the entire way, and I stuck to my plan. I'd completed the longest distance of my life and all in one piece, or so it seemed. It was an absolute victory. I took six days off to rest and woke up confidently the next Sunday to run up both as Helen and Changa, and with what I thought would be fresh, rested legs. The minute I started running, I felt something was wrong with my pelvis and my knees, but I figured they just needed some warming up after their long haul the week before. At the top of Bertha's, in about three strides, I felt the left side of my leg going, and then something that I can only liken to being kicked by a horse in the side of my knee. I stopped immediately, not knowing what was going on. I tried walking a few paces, and then I tried to run again, but my knee couldn't bend properly, and I knew something was very wrong. I have never opted to bail on anything, but I knew I wasn't getting any further, so I hitched a ride back to Hillcrest. I messaged my dear physio, who's become a mentor, friend, and psychologist all wrapped into one, and she fitted me in the next morning. She checked me out, and she said, You've got a bursa as a result of ITB friction, and there is no amount of physio that will sort this in time for comrades. My knees were starting to compensate for my injured hip. She referred me to a sports physician at Moses Mabida, and I got an appointment with him the following day and had cortisone injected into both my knees. 
I gave it the allocated day's rest, and on the Sunday I went for a trial run. The first few kilometers felt okay, and then just before six kilometers it hit, and it took my knee out worse than before and stopped me literally in my tracks. The cortisone had not worked at all. It was three weeks till Comrades. I'd booked for an ultrasound two weeks, prior, two weeks before Comrades to have my hip checked out anyway. Two days prior to the appointment, following a fascia release from the physio, I'd come out in the most awful swollen rash over both my hips. The scan showed that the tear on my hip had got significantly worse, having added another 500-odd kilometers to it since the marathon, but he was unable to inject the site with the rash for fear of a high risk of infection. He said I would need to come back the following week to have it done once the rash had cleared. He scanned both my knees, which were in a bad state, and did the ultrasound-guided cortisone into both sides. I gave it seven days to settle, and then I set out to trial it. It was 11 days to go till comrades. My legs didn't feel right from the start. I got to two and a half kilometers, and bang, my knee went properly. I have never felt so defeated and heartbroken. I had not even made it from our home to Camp Orchards. How could I possibly make it from Durban to Peter Maritzburg the following weekend? I turned back, wanting actually to just sit on the pavement and cry. I got just past Cotswold Garage and saw the outline of a tall, swim, slim woman, definitely not dressed for running, walking towards me. With the sun behind her and my vision blurred with my tears, I couldn't see who it was. But when her arms were stretched out open wide, I knew she was there for me. It was Amber, and in her friendship that has spanned over 34 years, we first met as eight-year-olds at boarding school in Underberg. I sobbed and I sobbed as she walked me to, my car, to her car, and I cried tears from every corner of my heart. For all that this had meant to me, for all that the journey had brought to me, it felt like I cried out the pain, not only of the last confirmation that my comrade's dream was over, but for every single disappointment in my heart. She hugged me wholeheartedly with all my sweat and streaming nose. I think I look probably a lot like this. Um, where I cried like you can only do with a close friend. And I knew that God had put her precisely there that morning. I keep a pile of random books. Well, not so random, actually, it turns out. On my bedside table that I can pick up and open at any time just to help me get to sleep in the evenings. And that night, I picked up this book, One Month to Live, 30 Days to a No Regrets Life. I opened it randomly, and this was the page that it opened on. I have to admit my sins so I can be forgiven. I have to admit my failures so I can learn from them. A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful, but if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. When we admit our mess-ups, we get another chance. When we take responsibility for our failures and we don't blame other people, God forgives us, and he gives us the power to start over. There's more. You must also be able to release your guilt. Let it go.
after a rider crashes, it's important for him to... Are we all good? <laughs> Just yeah. Okay. Now I think I've wiped the snot up there under my eye. <laughs> Okay, right. So, 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 so there's no dignity here. But once you've gone through childbirth, there's no dignity anyway. So that was lost a long time ago. And then you run comrades and there's no dignity. <laughs> After a rider crashes, it's important for him to get back on the bike as soon as possible to overcome his fears. It's the motocross way of getting back on the horse. You may feel like you're so far off God's track for your life right now that you can never get back. You've made mistakes, selfish choices. You le- you've let people down. You feel like your race has ended in a, me- in a messy crash. I have news for you. Get ready for an amazing race. God says, I still have a race for you to run. Look what the angel said after Christ rose from the dead. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee The angel said, he's alive, he's not here. You need to go and tell all the disciples he's alive. And oh, don't forget Peter. Remember, Peter's still included. He's still one of the disciples. Don't forget Peter. Jesus knew that Peter was totally broken and thought God could never use him again. He believed he had completely blown it and the race was over for him. Christ wanted him to know. Peter... I still have a race for you to run. I know how you're feeling, but you're still included. I still have a plan for your life. I'm going to give you the power to begin again, to become a great champion for me. God says the same thing to you today. I haven't forgotten you. I have a great race for you to run. Get up and let's go. I called my husband, who was downstairs, and I read it to him. He was speechless. That morning, I believed it was all over, but this passage confirmed to me, not that I was going to be able to finish, not that I'd be miraculously healed, but that there was still a race for me to run. I had to pull myself together to a place of perspective and gratitude, realizing that the race quite possibly wasn't about comrades. I was able-bodied, I had done the training, and I'd earned my place at that start line. I was not going to go away for the comrades weekend and wallow in sadness. I would be there at that start, and even if I made only a few kilometers of the race, I would savor every second that I got to be a part of it. I would savor it for every disabled, sick, lost, and broken person that would never experience the privilege of being there. I would hold my head up with a heart full of gratitude for having experienced the most extraordinary spiritual and emotional growth just in getting to that start line. So I kept my ultrasound appointment for the following day. He scanned my hip, and he was able to do the cortisone, and he redid my knees. This time, though, when he told me to try running again, I decided not to. If I was going to be able to arrive at the start in a semi-composed state, I didn't need to have another failed attempt at running to confirm what I already knew. I decided I would take a few walks from my house to the gatehouse instead, and that would be it. On the Tuesday afternoon, while walking up to the gatehouse, I bumped into a couple that I'd met at a friend's birthday earlier this year. 
They knew I was training for comrades, and they asked me if I was all ready for Sunday. With a sore heart, I explained how the last six weeks had unfolded and said that I was going to be at the start and go as far as I possibly could. They said that I had to contact a close friend of theirs who was a well-known sports doctor and that if there was anyone who could help me, it would be him. I thanked them, but I was very realistic that I'd seen enough specialists, spent enough money, <laughs> to know that I had done absolutely everything possible Besides, it was in four days' time. When I got back home after my walk, they had sent his number to my phone and a message to say that he would be expecting my call that evening. So I called him, and I ran through the history of my hip and now my knees. He concurred that there was nothing more that I could do. A particular way of strapping might help to slightly reduce the pain, but he told me to not think for a single minute that I would get through that 90 kilometers unscathed with an injury holding out. He was frank and honest, and I could hear pity in his voice. Thursday came quickly, and I had blocked off the morning months earlier to go to my first Comrades Expo with my beautiful running mentor and friend, Debs. On this journey, there have been so many beautiful people that have been incredibly kind and supportive. But there is nobody that epitomizes everything about true sportsmanship more than Debbie Fries. Her generous sharing of knowledge, her relentless support of me, her running advice, and her genuine desire for me to succeed has completely blessed me. She has such a passion for running, and she has shared it so freely and so sincerely with me. And it's once again highlighted for me the massive impact of kindness. The Comrades Expo was surreal, and being a part of the energy and the excitement that morning was just amazing. She took me around like a real pro and waited patiently while I met all my running inspirations and chatted with Coach Lindsay Perry, had my pictures taken at all the iconic spots, and bought my overpriced, and let me tell you, it's overpriced, Comrades hoodie. I was going to wear it tonight, actually. And my husband said, no, Jules, you're not here to stain. You can't be wearing it. When I tried it on and I said to her, Debs, will I still be able to wear this if I don't finish? She answered with a wholehearted, absolute yes. Just as we were on our way out, we bumped into someone I hadn't seen for years. She said she was so chuffed to see that I was finally running my comrades. And I sadly explained my injury. She paused for a minute and looked at me and said, you weren't by any chance the person that phoned my doctor on Tuesday. How could she have known that? She said she had seen him just after, and he had told her how sorry he felt for this girl from Hillcrest <laughs> who had just called him in desperation. And I said to her, please tell me the truth. Did he say that I don't stand a chance? She said, no, 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 no. He just felt very sorry for you. I had just arrived home from the expo and received a message saying that there was this ladies' evening that they wanted to plan, and would I consider sharing my comrade's journey? I knew in an instant that I had to say yes. How could I not? It would be like letting God down after all that he had shown me and the courage that he had filled me with. No sooner had I replied, and I had a voice note from a friend saying she had a little gift for me from her mum-in-law, and that she wanted me to have it sooner rather than later. She dropped it out at our gatehouse that day, 
It was this little book, Jesus Calling. She had placed the bookmark in June, and when I opened it and read for June, it said, For I am the Lord, your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. It was Thursday, the 6th of June. So I turned to that date, and I read it. This is what it said. Seek my face, and you will find fulfillment of your deepest longings. My world is filled with beautiful things. They are meant to be pointers to me, reminders of my abiding presence. The earth still declares my glory for those who have eyes that see and ears that hear. You had a darkened mind before you sought me wholeheartedly. I chose to pour my light into you so that you could be a beacon to others. There is no room for pride in this position. Your part is to reflect my glory. I am the Lord. Your part is to reflect my glory. She could have chosen any thoughtful gift for me, but she chose this book. The very book that I later found out had been what got my mom through her first year following her amputation of her leg. And I could have received it on any day of that week, but it was this day with this message, hours after having been asked to share with you tonight. Your part is to reflect my glory. Once again, I felt God's hand steering me. On Friday morning, I messaged the girl I'd bumped into at the expo, and I asked her that she, because I knew she was going to see this doctor that day, if there was any chance she could take a little video clip while she was there with him of exactly how I was to do this strapping so that I got it 100% right. A few hours later, I got a message from him asking if I could be at his practice in Durban North at 3.45 that afternoon. Absolutely yes, I said. I arrived half an hour early, not wanting to be a minute late, so grateful that he had made a plan to see me even if it was at the 11th hour. He told me to take a seat, and what proceeded was a conversation of brutal honesty. There was no medical treatment done. He asked me to tell him my story, why I was running. I told him everything, from my dream to my divorce, the blurred years of three young children, my mom's leg amputation, my daughter's curveballs, the journey we had had with Slev, and I cried and cried when I explained how much it had meant to me and how hard I'd worked for this goal. He sat there with tears in his eyes, and he gave me what I can only describe as the cold, hard truth and the absolute reality of what was in store for me if I was to stand even the slightest chance of making the full distance. He made no attempt to sugarcoat how bad the pain would be, and what to do when it hit. My three failed attempts at, ru at running had always ended in a lift home, and I didn't know how I could possibly carry on when my knee felt like it couldn't bend and my hip was on fire. He told me with confidence that my knee would go before Cowie's Hill, and when it did, I was to sit down, to gather myself, and to get my head right, to walk for a bit, and then keep trying to run. It'll come in waves, he said. May last for 10 kilometers or more at a time. Then it'll ease up slightly, but it'll come back and it'll come back harder. 
And the more exhausted you are, the harder it'll be to keep your mind stronger than the pain you will feel. It will be the hardest thing you're ever going to do. But after hearing your story and seeing your strength, I know you can do it. The reason God had crossed paths, the paths that had needed to, to orchestrate that appointment was for no other than me having to hear, not that everything was going to be okay and that I had the strength to do it, but to hear how epic it would be, the reality of what I'd have to face and the extent of pain that I'd have to get my head around enduring if I was going to make it. He scared me, but in a way I needed that. And for the first time in weeks, there was this teeny tiny little spark inside of me, thinking maybe, maybe, this was still possible. Sunday the 9th of June came. I woke up at 1.30 a.m. on my 42nd birthday for what felt like the day that I'd waited for my whole life. I had not run for six weeks, bar three failed attempts, and yet I have never felt so calm. I had prayed so hard in the days before that I would be accepting of the day's outcome, and wherever my race ended, that I would be gracious enough to accept it humbly and bravely, bravely, and I would still go to the finish and support all my friends that would cross the finish line that day. Gratitude was the focus of my prayer that morning. Afterwards, I read what was written in my little devotional for the 9th of June. Wear my love like a cloak of light, covering you from head to toe. Have no fear. Love decimates fear. Look at other people through lenses of love. See them from my perspective. This is how you will walk in the light, and it pleases me. I want my body of believers to be radiant with the light of my presence. How I grieve when pockets of darkness increasingly dim the love light. Return to me, your first love. Gaze at me in the splendor of your holiness, and my love will once again envelop you in light. I had my breakfast and I opened my birthday card from my mom that she'd left on the kitchen counter. Inside, she'd put this little, inside the card, she'd put this little bookmark. Don't forget that maybe you are the lighthouse in someone's storm. I was continually being reminded of light, God's light, wearing it, the lighthouse. And this was a vision that I took into and carried with me the whole day. My husband had made me a beautiful comrades book to read in the days running up to comrades, filled with inspirational quotes and messages and letters that he had got from my family and friends. In one from my sister, she had quoted lines from songs and scriptures and she had collated them into a message. But there was a line that struck me. The mountain in front of me will be thrown into the sea. I take up my cross and I start this race. When I read this a few days before, I decided that I would do this literally. If there was one way that I would not lose focus of what this run had been about, it would be to carry a cross in my hand, remembering and reminding myself that the strength I had was not mine, it was God's strength in me, and that through him, I could face whatever lay ahead. The emotional healing that I had experienced was all in God's plan for me. He needed me to set my eyes on a goal as big as comrades, 
to be able to draw closer to him. The irony that he needed me to have my sights on the world's longest marathon in order to get me to slow down and spend time with him. We got to Durban that morning and it felt completely surreal. Debs took Lauren and I to our pen and we found a little spot where we huddled together on our wad of newspaper and we prayed. The excitement and the energy was just incredible. And in my mind, I kept saying to myself, you are so blessed. I am standing at the start line of the world's longest, oldest, and without a shadow of doubt, the world's greatest race. I felt so unbelievably privileged and humbled. How many people I know, and how many people I don't know, that could never make it to that start line, and could only ever dream of the amazing gift of being fully able-bodied. We sang the national anthem and Shosha Lawza. They played Chariots of Fire, and my heart felt like it might explode. But again, I felt so incredibly calm. It was the only race in the last 12 months where I had no nerves or the desperate need to pee. <laughs> I, felt, I felt at peace, and I knew that whatever the day held, I had to give it everything inside of me. But when my body couldn't go any further, no matter how heartbroken, that I would surrender with grace and gratitude. Lauren and I held hands till we crossed over the starting mat. I insisted that she go on ahead. She had worked hard for this day too, and for her back-to-back -back medal, and I did not want to cost her even a minute. The first few kilometers were pretty scary. It was dark, and I've never been among so many runners. They sped out, and I felt like the entire nation was passing me in those first few kilometers. I resisted the urge to go, with them constantly reminding myself that I needed to preserve my energy, not for 87 kilometers that lay ahead, but for the strength that I would need to bear the pain when it hit, and to keep my mind completely focused for as long as I could. I repeated my early lessons to myself. Slow down, pace yourself, and enjoy the journey. I walked within 10 minutes of the start, and I continued to do so every few minutes. I was waiting for my knee to go, and it did, just after four kilometers. I walked, and I told myself not to panic, just to keep moving forward while I figured out what next. It was too dark. And with all the road closures, it would have been stupid to stop there and for Vlad to try and get to me. I could at least run slowly and steadily until it was light. I held on so tight to my cross. I felt like everyone was speeding off boldly. And I knew that for me, the race had just begun. By the time it was decently light, I was at 45th cutting, and a lot of the spectators looked like they'd just stepped out of a nightclub. <laughs> And there was a cold wind blowing. And I told myself, just keep your mind stronger than the pain and get to Westville. And I did. And the first familiar face I saw was Amber's. I heard someone shout my name as I looked over my shoulder. I caught her eyes. And I wanted to burst out crying. She had been with me on my last trial run where I had only got to two and a half kilometers. And now she was the first person that I saw and I'd made it further than 10 kilometers, I could get to Cowie's Hill. I could get to Vlad. 
I was looking out for him as I came into Pine Town, and he saw me first. My husband doesn't cry, and he was choked with tears in his eyes, and he said to me, I have never been so proud of you. You are so unbelievably brave. How could I possibly stop in front of him? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> the sacrifices he had made for me in the last year, the number of weekends with long runs where he had taken the kids up to the farm so I could do my long runs and be able to rest, he had picked up the slack and just wholeheartedly supported me every step of the way. There was no way I could stop in front of him. I thought I'd just need to get to Fields Hill where my brother was going to be waiting for me. I got to Fields Hill, and when I saw my dad and then my brother's face as he saw me, my heart almost broke. He was freezing cold in the shaded section and had been there since goodness knows what time. They come from Underberg. Um, and with tears in his eyes, he said, Jules, I am so proud of you. I cannot believe your strength. How could I stop in front of him? <laughs> As I got round the corner, all I could think of was beautiful-hearted Rowena, who had missed going to Mozambique with her hubby so that she was there for my comrades. She was waiting on Everton Bridge, and by the time I got to her, faithfully waiting for me with all my goodies laid out, I thought, I've just got to make it now to my babies who were waiting in Hillcrest. The amazing thing about children is their open honesty and the simplicity of their thinking. My daughter truly believed that I was going to win the Comrades Marathon. <laughs> she had watched me for so many months going out on these training runs, listening to my Lindsay Perry podcast and eating and sleeping my Comrades goal. When my leg had given up and she saw all the heartbreak and the tears, she wasn't so vocal about me being the next Comrades champion. And about a month before the race, I said to her, secretly hoping for a super positive answer, do you think mommy is going to manage to finish comrades? She was silent for a little bit, actually for quite a while. And then she said, I don't know, mommy. Only God knows if you're going to finish. I had to get to her and my boys in Hillcrest. I couldn't let them down. When I saw them and their overjoyed little faces, I just wanted to cry. I gave them a big group hug, and then I turned and ran. If I'd stopped for any longer, I would have stayed and got in the car with them. On the Friday before Comrades, I had a message from someone I had met a few years prior saying that she would be waiting for me in her wheelchair at the top of Bertha's Hill. I explained my injury and asked that she didn't come out for me as it was highly unlikely that I would make it that far. Following a car accident, she's been in a wheelchair for the last seven years. Her young son, who's now 14, has taken care of her, singly taken care of her, solely, should I say, taken care of her, since he was seven. When I saw them, I thought of how she will never walk, let alone run. And although I was in agony, at least I could feel my legs. And the pain was temporary. How brave her precious boy was missing out on a normal childhood to take care of his mum. There were so many times that day that I thought of people that live in constant pain and how much I take my good health for granted. There was no way I was stopping anywhere near them. Before I knew it, I was at the halfway mark, and it was just under five hours. Could I actually do this? I held on to my cross and kept repeating, in Christ, all things are possible. 
In that second half, the people that I saw came at exactly where I needed a push. Two friends had been absent very early to get a spot in Cato Ridge, and I kept telling myself I had to get to them. When they ran alongside me, bursting with excitement, I could not bring myself to even consider stopping. Just after Cato Ridge, my neighbor appeared out of the crowd, and he put his hand on my back and said, I am so proud of you. I just cried. I had clung so tightly to my cross in the kilometers prior. I felt like it was God telling me that he was proud of me and that Barry was the messenger. It went on every time I needed help. It was there in the form of someone special to me. And when there wasn't, a fellow runner would say something or a spectator would shout my name. It blew me away how our country felt so whole on the 9th of June. South Africa is so broken at the moment, and yet on that day, I have never felt such a powerful sense of unity and hope, and I don't think I've ever felt quite so proud to be South African. High flyers, CEOs running alongside, runners with soles flapping off their shoes, and some insanely barefoot all together, all enduring the same challenges, the same road, the same race, one common goal. With about 20 kilometers to go, I felt almost intoxicated by the pain, and I was exhausted mentally more than anything from trying to focus my mind away from the pain for the last 65-odd kilometers. I saw the shade of the bridge at Lion Park, and as I approached it, I thought, I'm going to lie down here for five minutes. My legs and my pelvis need to stop. No sooner had I thought this, and on my right, my friend Kari popped up. She saw I was broken. Do you want some Coke, she said. And like a well-groomed novice, Dean, you're not meant to be here, but Dean, you'll be proud of me. I said, no, 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 no. I don't want Coke. You don't ever do anything new on race day. Before I could finish my sentence, that bottle was in my mouth and it was exactly what I needed. The next thing I heard her shout, Yaku! And I saw a six foot something man turn around. You need to get my friend to the finish, she said. He looked at her, kind of squiff, and then she very assertively said, You need to give me your word, you'll get my friend to the finish. You have my word, he said. And so this gentle giant Yaku, with the most hardcore, I have nothing against Afrikaans people, just putting that out there now before I said, with the most hardcore Afrikaans accent I have ever heard, said, let's go. He told me that he was tired and sore too, and we could do it together. He was running as 10th comrades, and he was aiming for a bronze. We were on track for a 10.55 finish. He said we would run five cat size, and then we would walk five cat size. And he would, <laughs> and he called them out. When I think of how exhausted he must have been, to then be calling them out for me. Each time I got to four, I would say, Yaku, I can't do another one. And he would shout back at me, yes, you can. The downhills in that last third of the race nearly finished me. And in the true spirit of comrades, Yaku never left me. When we passed another friend of mine who had made a beautiful birthday banner and balloons for me, he asked, are you a celebrity? 
I laughed. And I said, why? He said, you've got so many friends supporting you. He said, my wife dropped me off at the start this morning, and I haven't got anyone until the finish. I felt absolutely awful for him. And there he was helping me. He was asking me questions, I think trying to distract me from the pain. And I told him I was too tired to talk, and he had to tell me stories. And then when he, kept on, when he, when he did, I kept on saying to him, Yaku, you're such a Dutchman, I can't even understand what you're saying. And he would have to repeat himself. <laughs> the poor guy. I actually think they, they, should be, they should introduce a medal for legends like Yaku. He insisted on holding my water bottle, and I, when he saw how the pain was breaking me, he put his hand on my back, and he kept saying, you're going to do it. We've still got so much time. We've still got so much time. At the bottom of Little Polly's, my knee felt like it was broken, and I could not bend my leg for another step. He told me to stop. And out he pulled a roll of red masking tape, and I said, are you joking? He said, no, just keep still. And he taped my leg much the same way I imagine the Free State farmers strap their injured cattle. By the time I got to Polly's shorts, I could not shut off the pain of my hips enough to run anymore, with or without the red masking tape. I said to him I was so sorry, but that I had to walk for the rest of the way. I told him to go on ahead, as I knew he wanted a bronze, and if I didn't run again, we were never going to make it in time. He said, no, I'm sticking with you. When I stopped halfway up Polly's shorts and couldn't hold back the tears, out came the red masking tape once more, and he re-strapped my knee. I said to him, when I'd last seen my brother and my dad, they said they would be waiting for me at the top of Polly's, and I had to get to them. He took my hand, and then he said, are you married? (laughs) I said, Yaku, you have got to be kidding me. You've run almost 80 kilometers, and you're trying to pick me up like this. He laughed, and he said, no, 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 no. I just need to know if I might get clapped by your brother at the top of Polly's if he sees me holding your hand. I don't think that there was anything anyone could have said to me halfway up Polly's shorts after 10 and something hours of running and in pain that could make me laugh as much as I did. He held my hand up that entire beast of a hill. We made it to the top of Polly's, and my brother didn't clap him. (laughs) He told him he was a legend. About six kilometers or so from the finish, he kept pulling off to the side of the road and retching, but nothing came. He insisted every time that I was not to stop for a second, and that he would catch up with me, and he did. He was changing to an awful shade of gray, and I could see that he was in pain. He had terrible tummy cramps, and thought it was possibly the dodgy water that had gone in his mouth when running through Camperdown. A spectator had been hosing down the runners as they passed, and he thought that obviously the water that had gone in his mouth was what had done it. Come to think of it though, with not a single person seconding him, He had had to take food and drink from water tables and strangers the entire way, so he could have picked up a number of bugs anywhere that day. He had chafed so badly on his inner thighs and was in agony. 
We were three kilometers from the finish and still walking. His stride painfully small for him to keep pace with mine. And he said to me, you've got more than an hour to do just three kilometers. You can walk slowly and you'll make it. I wouldn't run into the stadium with you anyway, because that's your moment, and this is your first comrades. He made me promise him that I would not stop, and off he ran. The poor guy, absolutely desperate to get to the finish and to get to a toilet. I carried on walking, and I don't think that there was an inch of my body that wasn't in pain. My foot, having compensated for my awkward posture of trying to save my hip, was a burning, literally raw blister. About a kilometer from the finish, a woman in a blue shirt put her hand on my back and with seeing medals, zero, you know how they've got the medals, zero in your name, she said, well done, Julie, you've almost completed your first comrades. I thanked her and I smiled back at her. She said, what's in your hand? Too tired to explain the miracle of what this cross had meant to me throughout that day. I opened my hand. She burst out crying and she pulled me towards her, hugging, towards her, hugging me. She said, my mother died in my arms just over a year ago with a wooden cross exactly like that in her hand. I know she's with me. At the time, I didn't think this, as I was so overwhelmed by everything. But later that night, I wondered if this was the real reason that God had wanted me to carry this cross the whole way. Because this woman needed God's comfort and reassurance right then, even more than I needed his strength that day. When I entered the stadium or the race course, so much emotion welled up in me. I could not believe that I was at the home stretch of a race that four kilometers in had seemed impossible. My comrade's dream had come true, but more than that, I had been forever changed by the healing and the spiritual growth that had taken place in me on those long, quiet runs. I crossed the finish line a different person to the one that had printed off that Lindsay, Lindsay Perry program 11 months prior. And in my broken, blistered body, I felt stronger and more free than I've ever felt in my entire life. My body was broken, but God had kept my heart, my willpower, and my spirit completely intact. I've shared with you some of the amazing things that have happened along the way. But the biggest one has to, has to be that having the space to reconnect with God has allowed me to change the frequency I operate on. I can only liken it to having reset the radio station I'm tuned into. Often you hear people saying that they wish they could hear God. Or how do you feel God speaking to you? This journey has allowed me to really be receptive of his signs, of his messages. They've often been through people or God placing specific people in my path at specific times. 
They have been through scriptures and spiritual quotes or messages, random acts of kindness from strangers, and then direct gestures like offerings of prayer. I could go on listing them forever. But I've seen so clearly and have felt with such conviction that these were God's voice. These have been God speaking to me. Perhaps I needed my first lesson of literally slowing down to allow me to actually plug into these. I needed to be away from the needs of my kids and everyone else to be still enough and mindful enough to hear him. And perhaps that was the much bigger reason that God needed me to be on the road. He was training me for a race that was bigger than comrades, for life. If there are little nuggets that I hope you would take home with you this evening from what I've shared, these would be them. If you feel a passion or desire in your heart to do something, and I'm definitely not suggesting you all go and run comrades, (laughs) whatever it is, try and make it a priority. Start finding a way to make the sacrifices to fit it into your life and do it. I so love the quote, set God-sized goals destined to fail without divine intervention. I cannot tell you how many times I repeated that to myself this last year. The limits we perceive for ourselves are nowhere near our actual limits. Persist. When the curveballs come, and they will, Try and embrace them. It may very well be that the curveballs and the things that you think are against you are the very things that will bring out the best in you. Be humble and don't be afraid to wear your heart on your sleeve. Be able to admit when you are weak. Some of the kindest, most amazing people have come into my life when I've allowed them to see that I am struggling. Shake up the radio station you tuned into. Change your frequency. Consciously try and tune in to what God might be saying to you or showing you. Our strengths are gifts from God, but our imperfections are a part of us too. I am slowly learning to accept my imperfections, but more than that, I am learning to cope better with life's imperfections. We need to remind ourselves that we decide what defines us. No negative situation or circumstances will define us unless we allow it to. Wherever we can, let's as women choose kindness. There is nobody that goes untouched by an act of kindness, no matter how small. When God puts a need on your heart, listen to him, do it. It doesn't have to be seen or heard. God sees it all. And God's hand is in everything, even the minutest details. Let's try and be lighthouses as often as we can. Comrades was just one day, but the impact of the people that were there for me like little pockets of light lifted me and willed me to continue even through the darkest stages of that run. How much more can we be like this in the lives of people around us every day? Everybody is in some way either themselves or has someone close to them running a life comrades, either spiritually, emotionally, or physically, desperately trying to pace themselves 
we are surrounded by people, or maybe even you yourself, are going through a heartbreak or loss, illness, tragedy, or just a really steep uphill battle, a poly shorts. How important are the lighthouses? God wants us to be the lighthouses for him in whatever way we can, as much as he wants us to unashamedly embrace those that are lighthouses to us when we find ourselves in darkness. Try and somehow, in the craziness of life, to make space and time to be alone. And when you get it, use it wisely. Don't be afraid to do things seemingly to others alone. God is always there, ready with his shoes laced up, waiting for you to choose him as his partner. He'll run with you in any weather conditions, and he'll be with you through the worst of your pain. Because the truth is, he is our only real constant. No one will ever love us more than God loves us. And no matter what we do, no matter what changes in our life, and no matter how lost or broken we are feeling, with God, we're still included. Whatever life race you're running, he says he will give you the power to begin again. And he says the same thing to us today. I haven't forgotten you. I still have a race for you to run. Get up. Let's go. the video. So, <laughs> I did just actually make a note here, because I'm, I'm sure you would want to hear this, but Yaku, um, when I tried to locate Yaku on the app, there were about 42 Yakus that ran Comrades, and in his pictures, none of the numbers had come out, and I was so worried because, well, he was holding my hand, I probably shorts he'd also taken my number, and uh, I, I was so worried that with the noise or with just the pain and everything, I might have given him the wrong number or something. And I thought, how will I ever thank this man? And on the Tuesday after Comrades, an unknown number came up. And he said, how are your knees? <laughs> and I said, Yaku, I'm so glad you phoned me. I didn't know how I was ever going to thank you for what you did for me. And he said, no, you don't need to thank me. It was you that got to the finish. And we chatted. And he said, Julie, his, he's torn his ACL, the crucial something ligament. And he's actually having surgery in two weeks' time. So he's not running next year. And he said, 2021, we're running together, the down run. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> but I have my way of repaying his kindness. And Yaku will never run another comrades without an army of people seconding him. And that is my promise to him, that he will have a support team of note for every comrades that he runs from here on out. So yeah, I thought I'd just share that. The update on Yahoo.